Welcome to Create New Futures, a show about thought-provoking ideas and practices you can use to create and shape your future in life and in business. Join Aviv Shahar, author and innovation strategy consultant, as he shares his proven strategies that have helped clients create breakthrough results. Aviv has guided executives at Fortune 100 companies, and now he wants to help you. Welcome to Create New Futures, where we explore how you can create new futures for you and for your organization. This is Aviv, and today I'm speaking with Oscar Trimboli. Oscar is the author of How to Listen, Discover the Hidden Key to Better Communication. He is the speaker and the host of the podcast, Deep Listening. Oscar, welcome. G'day, Avi, but looking forward to listening to the questions today. Of all the things you do, what do you enjoy most? What makes you most alive? Definitely listening to future generations, my grandchildren, four of them, anytime I get to play Lego with them. It's a really fascinating insight into the way they think, the way they make sense of the world, the way they create, the way they anticipate the choices they make about what colors, what sizes, what structures. And if they're doing it with another one of their grandchildren, how they interact with each other, who shares, who doesn't, who's helping the other one out when they're struggling. So playing Lego with the grandchildren, Avi, that's where my energy is most optimized. I find it fascinating. Curiosity and observation of the people you love most is the essence in in what you're describing there. Shall we dive right in and reflect on your book? What is the big idea in how to listen? Good listeners listen to what people say and great listeners notice what people don't say. When you know the neuroscience of listening, you realize that people can think it up to nine times faster than they can speak. So the first thing that they say is probably between 10 and 14% of what they're thinking. So the big idea in the book is listen carefully and notice what people aren't saying. You'll uncover a mind of gold full of information. So that's the big idea in the book. And what prevents us from listening well, from discovering this gold mine? that is latent in what people say and don't say? We've been researching 23,000 people now, workplace listeners, what gets in their way when it comes to listening. And consistently, they say themselves, their mind chatter, what goes on in their own mind is the number one thing that gets in their way. They're thinking about the last conversation they had. They're thinking about the next conversation they're anticipating, they're solving, or they're distracted. They're distracted externally by devices, by noise, by other things that are going on. So when it comes to listening and what gets in our way, there's four consistent ways that people get distracted, four different ways that are barriers, and we coded them into the four villains of listening. And the four villains, the dramatic listener 
the interrupting listener, the lost listener, and the shrewd listener. Each of those has a completely different orientation and a completely different barrier. For the dramatic listener, it's their own emotion. For the lost listener, it's typically some kind of internal distraction. They're not sure why they're in the meeting or they're thinking about other things. For the interrupting listener, they're very time orientated. They're very productivity orientated. They value time much more than the other person. And they kind of jump ahead. They will interrupt the other person because they want to help them and help themselves to have a shorter meeting. And then the shrewd listener is the one who's a problem solver. They'll listen carefully. Hmm. Yes, tell me. But in their head, they're jumping ahead. They're solving the next two, three, four problems. And the speaker says in our research, I know they're trying to fix me. I wish they'd listen to me. So they're the barriers that are typically getting in people's ways, Arvi. And what's the cost of suboptimal listening? What is it we are missing both professionally and personally because of these villains and these interruptors and interruptions? Well, in workplaces, the costs are time, longer meetings, more unproductive meetings, uh, repeating meetings because you have to go back and people do rework. Lost customers, employees that leave before they wanted to, declining profitability or market share, loss of reputation because you're not listening to journalists or to regulators. So in a commercial context, the cost of not listening is vast and can impact profit. Personally, could be confusion. It could be conflict in personal relationships as well. And those relationships that we hold closest to us are generally the ones where we're least conscious of our listening. And those four villains that we mentioned earlier on kind of play out really, really quickly in personal relationships there. So there's some of the costs that the people in our research group have told us really get in the way in commercial and personal contexts. So some of those what you describe as the four villains, they are sourced and catalyzed by different triggers. Some relate to environmental settings and how the workplace had become much more fast-paced and digitized and electronically intense over the last three, four decades. You could say that the workplace today is generally suffering cognitive impairment, cognitive degradation. So we anticipated 40 years ago that technology will make us a lot more relaxed and attentive and able to access ourselves. We now know that the opposite has happened. So there is some of that, how to manage your environment, your electronic environment, your day, your cadence, your energies. And then some of what you're describing in those villains are purely in the developmental space, how to personally manage your energies, your emotions, your attention, and what are the personal practices and mindfulness and such that you bring to yourself. So you are describing a vast spectrum of issues that stand in the way of optimal listening. This is why we developed the listening quiz so that we could personalize it for the person So for many people, they're not conscious of how 
they listen. They're not conscious of what gets in the way. They're not conscious of what they're skillful at, where their listening strengths are. So if you visit listeningquiz.com, you can take a seven-minute assessment and you'll get a personalized output that describes which one of those four you are. That's handy, but it's not useful. What's useful is we provide tips specific to your listening barrier. So rather than trying to figure out all of them, we just say, here's one tip, and you may want to go and explore a bit further and get all three tips from the report as well. But they're tailored specifically to the way you responded to the listening questions. There's only 20 questions. We say that it'll take you seven minutes. On average, people complete the quiz in about four and a half minutes. So one thing that I did learn, Avi, in the decade that I've committed to this process was people weren't interested in what great listeners do. They were interested in what was getting in their specific way. And once we personalized it to them and gave them one specific tip, so for the interrupting listening villain, for example, it's just count one, 1,000, two, 1,000, three, 1,000 when somebody pauses and it's likely they haven't finished their idea. Now, this idea went a little bit further when I was working with somebody in a military academy. And a month later, I said, how did you go with that? And he goes, oh, it was no good, Oscar. I counted one, 1,000, two, 1,000, three, 1,000. So I used your second tip, which was bite your tongue, but I bit it too hard and my tongue ended up bleeding and it distracted the whole conversation. So I don't recommend you bite your tongue so hard that it bleeds. But sometimes biting your tongue literally and figuratively may not be a bad thing for the interrupting listening villain. As you mentioned, Avi, it's vast when you think about all the context in which we listen. We listen in one-on-one conversations. We listen in group conversations. We listen face-to-face. We listen over video conference. So we've created resources for all those different things, whether that's the books, the third book you mentioned earlier on, the playing cards where people can practice using a set of 50 cards throughout the year, one per week, the 90-day challenge, which is a series of reminder emails once a week to keep you on track when it comes to your listening. So despite how vast it is, we know that just simple micro skills will be the difference in progressing your listening. Interesting. So small tips, micro skills, that people can put to practice, you observe, create differential results. Yeah, we've been tracking 1,410 listeners for the last four years in a long-term study to understand how are people making progress and which one of those tips consistently are making a difference for them. Uh, The number one tip for all of them is use the technology. Don't let the technology use you. So the kinds of notifications you mentioned earlier on in terms of email pop-ups or what apps on the phone, instant messaging coming up, Slack messages, all these things. I worked for an organization and I know the research to gather your attention and keep it on the app. And the original research from that came from the slot machine industry in Las Vegas to make sure people kept putting coins in the machine and kept pressing the buttons. Technology is very powerful if you use it. 
technology is equally powerful if it uses you and you need to make a choice. And for a lot of us, our choice is very simple. Whether you use Apple ecosystem, Android ecosystem, Windows ecosystem, there's one button you can press to manage your notifications, to turn them on, to turn them off, to turn them back on again. Or you can use the technology so it looks at your calendar and switches them off every time there's something scheduled in your calendar as well. And Avi, this is what we mean by use the technology, don't let the technology use you. Whether we speak to doctors in general practice or doctors in emergency surgeries, whether we talk to bank tellers, to school principals, to prison officers, these technologies are all jumping into people's working life. And that one tip is the one tip consistently that people say makes the biggest difference. The other two tips are drink water before you go into a meeting and drink a glass of water every hour in a meeting as well. And that just sends a very simple message to the parasympathetic nervous system just around your lungs. There's a nervous system that has more nerve endings than your brain and it connects with your gut feel and it will help you to pause and be present for the other person. The final tip of the three is just noticing your breathing and noticing the breathing of the other person. But they work in layers, sort out the notifications, work on the water, and then move up to the breathing. So you're describing in the first tip strategies to manage the attentional capture of technology and reroute that and take control of your technological environment and the two other tips water and breathing are more encouraging somatic awareness mm. and by being attuned and somatically tethered inside to how you are operating you'd be more fully present and therefore the quality of listening become a byproduct of that rather than you're captured by something else now what's underlying a lot of those things are other layers that are more psychological behavioral i once described the condition that people in corporate life suffer and not just in corporate life as the the never ending anxious preoccupation with the next the purgatorial never ending anxious preoccupation with the next that's when somebody is in a meeting they know that in an hour they need to be in another meeting so they now they're in this meeting they're thinking about what they will need to do in an hour and guess what happens in an hour time when they are in that meeting they either think about what happened in the meeting before that they never fully were able to attend to or they're thinking about the meeting that will happen after that so practically a person physically went through a full work day of half a dozen meetings but most of the time they were not present where they were only half present so in essence when you coach people to listen and be attuned to their breath and to their inner state you are coaching them to become present in their life and we want to make it again as practical as possible when it comes to presencing we say when we work with clients is you can control the meetings that you create And when you create a meeting, don't create a meeting that starts at the top of the hour or at the bottom of the half hour. Start a meeting at five minutes, 
or even 10 minutes after the hour. And what we notice when people do this is they comment consistently and they say, Oscar, when I tried this, the meetings go quicker. They're not actually slower. So one of the fascinating insights is when you listen to what's not said, you help the speaker move from what they say to what they think to what they mean much quicker. And you get to the essence of the conversation. Now, when clients turn up to meetings with me, they go, oh, I love coming to your meetings, Oscar, because I've got five minutes to go to the bathroom to make myself a cup of tea, a cup of coffee, drink some water. Or more importantly, what they say is I can just connect with myself and process what happened before and get ready for this conversation. And when people use this very simple technique of scheduling their own meetings five after the hour, one of my clients in the UK, Emma, said to me, Oscar, when I tried that, I just thought they're going to think I'm crazy sending a meeting five minutes after the hour. But only after a week of practicing this, she sends me this very long email saying, I thought you were crazy, but I gave it a try. I had nothing to lose. My one-hour meetings quickly moved to less than half an hour, and my half-an-hour meetings moved very quickly to 10-minute meetings. And although that's great for me, it was the other person that was more grateful because they got to say what they meant because they had time to collect their thoughts before they come into the meeting. So as we think about those practical tips, those three that we mentioned earlier on, that's all about you and how you manage your state and get ready for presence. But connecting you with the other speaker or the team meeting or multiple people in that context, just that simple act of giving everybody a five-minute break in between, you may reduce some of that purgatory, Arvi, that you mentioned about what's next, what's next, what's next. You spoke there about helping the conversation get to the essence of whatever it is that is looking to be addressed. What else have you discovered in your research about facilitating conversations to get to the point of need, point of pain, or the point of the essence of the conversation? What else have you discovered? Well, this lesson was taught to me by a mother and her son. Jennifer was the mother, Christopher was the son. And when Christopher came home from junior school. Excitedly, he told his mum, mummy, mummy, I'm so excited. I learned maths today. I learned that three is half of eight. Now, Jennifer, although a stay-at-home mum is a trained school teacher, so she knows that something's not right. And she thought she misheard her son, Christopher. And she said, honey, could you say that again? And he explained. He said, we learned maths. We learned division. We learned that three is half of eight today. And she scratched her head and thought, what are they teaching kids at school today? She went to the cupboard. She got a packet of M&Ms, the little chocolate candy, and took out eight M&Ms and lined them up like soldiers, four by four, facing each other on the kitchen bench. And she picks up Christopher and puts him on the bench and said, honey, can you count how many M&Ms on this side? And he went, four, mummy. How many on that side? And he went, four, mummy. And she said, see, Christopher? Four is half of eight, not three. And with that, Christopher, like Superman, he leaps off the kitchen bench, goes to a corner cupboard, gets a piece of paper, 
and he draws the figure eight with a Sharpie, a texter for his mum and shows it to his mum. And then he folds it in half twice. He tears it in half and shows his mum two perfectly formed threes. Now, Christopher was thinking in geometry and his mum was thinking in arithmetic. And many of us have three is half of eight moments in our workplace because we listen to what people say, not to what they mean. When I spent time with Christopher and asked him, he's now an adult, about how would he recommend that people improve how they listen? He said, communicate about how you communicate. And I said, okay, that makes sense. We picked that up into one simple question, which is, what would make this a good conversation? It's something you should ask right at the beginning. Not what will make this a good conversation for you, but what will make this a good conversation? Now, what you don't know about Christopher is he's a world champion bug catcher now. He solves the most complex computer problems in the world. He's sought out by many of the big name technology companies that you may think about as an expert in his field. Now, if you were thinking about a bug catcher with a net and a butterfly, when I mentioned he's a bug catcher, you're probably listening for similarities rather than differences. The other thing you don't know about Christopher is he's neurodiverse. He processes the world in a completely different way. So Avi, the really powerful message from Christopher is communicate about how you communicate. Start the meeting at five after the hour. If you get a chance, ask the person what will make this a great conversation before you get into the dialogue. But if not, ask that at the beginning of a conversation. And same, in a team meeting, you should ask that question too. The reason we ask that question is we want to check in in a one-hour meeting about every 15 minutes. Avi, you mentioned this would make it a good conversation. How are we going? And as Emma mentioned to me and many of our clients that we work with, they say, you know what, Oscar? I've got everything I need, but there is something really important I want to discuss that I realized, and then they get into discussing that. The meetings are still shorter, but the people, because they realize you're present and listening, they can express what they mean rather than be in a rush to say the first thing that comes out of their mind. What have you observed, Oscar, about the different levels of listening? I'd say this way, in my work, I've been working with senior executives for many, many years, and I've always introduced them to four levels of listening. I rarely ever bring listening level five or listening level six in corporate settings. And what I've discovered was that there is level one listening, which is people don't listen, they're multitasking. They're sitting on a conference call, and until such time as they hear their name, and now they know they need to engage. That's not listening. Listening level two, I define as cerebral listening. It's the attorney in court. You only ask the questions that you know the answers for. And you're trying to, some people do solution selling this way. They don't really listen. They're trying to lead you to a concrete solution. This was one of your villains earlier. Mm. Listening level three is when we listen to emotions and energy and beginning to truly be attuned to the other person. And listening level four is what I describe as active listening or listening with presence. And that's typically very helpful when I share that 
in business settings. And I ask people, and I say to people, you can't, if you're a busy manager, you can't always be in level four listening. But here is the deal. If you are able to enter listening level four for 10 or 15 minutes during the day with one of your people or with your team, even 15 minutes will shift completely the experience of that day for you and for the other person because energetically, biologically, neurally, what actually is becomes possible in that is totally transformative. In other words, a listening with presence is a state where we surrender any other agenda and any other process. And by definition, we allow ourselves to be transformed by the dialogue. And mm. people often would describe to me in a three, four day workshop where we do strategy and innovation. And this is just a segment. People for years would say that was a piece that I took home and was transformative to my relationships. Yeah, you describe a very powerful way to deconstruct listening. And at its most basic form, you're either listening to something, you're listening to the content, you're listening to yourself, or you're listening for things, you're listening for the context, you're listening for the unsaid, you're listening for meaning. And where the power of listening comes in is where you mentioned listening for things for that 10 minutes. What most listeners don't know, it's not your job to make sense of what the speaker says. They are actually the expert in that already. As a listener, your job is to help the speaker express what they think and what they mean. And when you do that, you'll create a very memorable experience but you'll move from transactional dialogue to transformation for the other person or for the team. And the reason most people aren't successful at moving from listening to things to listening for things is they're not even conscious of the color of their listening battery. Hmm. Your listening battery can be green, it can be orange, can be yellow, can be red, might even be black because you're about to shut down or reboot or whatever happens when you run out of power. One of the exercises we ask when we work with our deep listening ambassador community is a check-in we use consistently. Just describe the color of your listening battery as you come into a conversation. And we ask them to describe the color of the listening battery at the end of the conversation as well. For many of us, whether we're green, orange, yellow, or red, it doesn't matter. What matters is, do you have a strategy to recharge your listening batteries? So we gave you a couple already. Schedule the meeting off the hour. Drink water. That will recharge your listening battery. Change your physical stance. If you're sitting, stand before the meeting. If you're standing, sit before the meeting do something to physically change the way you do that. The other thing is a ritual I have is I listen to music at a speed based on the outcome of the conversation I'm going into. So I work with actuaries who are people who work in insurance companies who price complex things like what's the price of global climate change when it comes to home insurance, as an example. Now, that's not an insignificant undertaking. To calibrate myself for that conversation, I'm listening to slow music. It's instrumental. It has no words. Yet when I'm about to present a keynote, 
I'm listening to a song that's at three times the speed of that song to get me in an energetic state to hold the audience through the next hour or 45 minutes or two hours of the presentation. That way my listening batteries are recharged for a period of time. One of the things I want to invite everybody to explore is this. You mentioned, Avi, you can't listen consistently throughout the day at a really deep level. You can pay attention and you can give attention. I think you elegantly described the give attention. Give attention is about generosity. It's about curiosity. It's an act of being in that moment in a really interesting state of giving attention. But for most of the day, we're paying attention. It feels like our duty. It's our responsibility. It's like income tax. We have to pay it. We can't notice the difference even between giving and paying attention if our listening batteries are yellow, red, or getting towards reboot and black as well. So one of the things I would encourage everybody is just have a ritual. You can listen consistently for 12 seconds. We listen four times faster than the speaker can speak. And that's why it's very difficult for the listener to be present all the time. So it's not a question, will you get distracted? The answer is yes. People say to me, Oscar, how do I stop getting distracted? I said, do you want the good news or the bad news? And I say, the good news is you're going to be distracted because of this differential between listening speed and speaking speed. The good news is as long as you have a few techniques, they have to be simple, they have to be actionable. There's something you can remember, drink water, take a breath manage your notifications, check in on your listening battery, you'll be able to move out of distraction much quicker and become present to the conversation much faster. What have you discovered about listening to self and coaching people to better listen to themselves? As I mentioned earlier, we've got this research database of 23,000 workplace listeners and we're tracking 1,410. 86% of people are stuck at listening to themselves. Most people struggle with noticing that the conversation they need to have to be available to listen is actually a conversation with themselves. How does this show up? People say to me, Oscar, I get really frustrated listening when somebody's getting emotional. And we unpack that with them and get them to notice that emotion is a beautiful signal of trust from the other person. They trust you to have an emotional conversation, yet you may not trust yourself with processing that emotion because that may trigger an emotion in you that you haven't fully dealt with as well. So when it comes to listening to yourself, this is where most people are stuck, Avi. They're stuck in the chatter inside their mind and very, very, very few one in 10 people are ready to move on to listening to things, to listening for things, to those higher levels of listening. And it's foundational. Unless you listen to yourself, you can't build up on the next step to be able to help the other person to listen to what they think and what they mean. Yeah. There are many people who do a much better job like Professor Mark Brackett and his book, Permission to Feel, when it comes to dealing with emotions that we talk to our clients and our workshop attendees about. It's okay that 
86% of us know that the first barrier to listening is our internal chatter. It's what we do about it next that's more important. And people say to me, oh, Oscar, I've read many books, but yours is very simple, it's very practical, it's very pragmatic. And I say, yes, every tip I provide is very, very easy to do, yet it's difficult to practice, to practice consistently. Yet when you do, all of a sudden you free up memory. So a lot of us come into conversations with all these browser tabs opened in our mind and each one of those tabs opening up, that's taking away a bit of our working memory and a bit more and a bit more and a bit more. And when I spoke to Professor Stefan van der Steckel from Utrecht University, who's written three books on attention and working memory, he says, when it comes to listening, you can multitask if you're doing routine things like maybe cutting up vegetables and listening to music gardening, listening to a radio or a podcast. But when it comes to listening to a human, if you're doing something that's complex, it's collaborative, it's creative, it may be constrained, it may be surrounded in conflict. When it comes to listening to a human, multitasking is impossible. Yeah. And this is amplified in workplaces. I'm sure, Avi, you're in meetings where people are not only multitasking, but they're multitasking with complex technology in front of them as well. Actually, I'm not in meetings like this because in my meetings, there is a different rule. When I lead the meeting, we are not multitasking. So actually, I'm not in meetings like this. I live the privileged life. I get to set the kind of meetings I'm in. And sure, people will multitask. But in the events that I lead, there is no multitasking. We are engaged in the intensity of the conversation. Now, the important point there about multitasking, I have discovered very early in life that multitasking was a lie. When I was a fighter pilot in the Israeli Air Force, I discovered that people talked about multitasking. It was another name for bogus engagement. I could move my attention very quickly from where one airplane was to where the other was when we were practicing dogfight, but I could never truly pay attention to two or three different things all at the same time. It's a line. So that was an early realization. Let me ask you, just before we move to a few final questions, Oscar, what do you believe would become possible if all the people around you learn to practice deep listening? What would actually become possible? Well, rather than imagining it, this is a question we ask people as we track them through the 90-day challenge and this longitudinal research we mentioned. The number one thing that people say is they get time back. On average, people are getting back in their week between 5% and 20% of their schedule. Now, 20% of a week is a day. That's huge. Now, I'm not saying everybody gets that. So when you do practice this, the time you get is extraordinary. So you can move from reactive workplace output to proactive workplace output. And you don't even have to use that time for the workplace. You could decide to go and do something else. The other thing our clients say when they practice this, the relationship with the other person changes. There's more trust in the workplace. Profitability increases over a two to three year time horizon. 
because the conversations that I have with customers, with employees, with suppliers, with regulators, get to the point. It's much more direct, not because of a communication difference, but because the people feel comfortable saying what they mean rather than playing a game of slowly drip feeding people information. So workplaces change with some of our clients. That means their ability to attract and retain high caliber employees has increased dramatically. And for the suppliers they work with, timelines are much shorter because they're not going through a process of explaining and re-explaining what part they need in an engineering production environment or in a professional services environment, whether it's a market research firm or an advertising agency, they get the brief the first time and the clients are referring them more because they say, I want you to work with my supplier because they really get me. They understand what I'm trying to achieve. And I remember working with a client, it was in about 2015, and they were in the advertising industry, Arvi. And they had this very problematic relationship with one of their largest clients. And they said, it's just not working. Every time we take a piece of work back to them, they say we were wrong, we weren't listening. All of a sudden, it becomes unprofitable work for them. They said, what should we do? And I just said, when you're in that conversation with that chief marketing officer, just ask them one question consistently. Tell me more. It's a very short question, but it's a very potent question. It's a question that keeps the conversation going in the same direction. Tell me more. If you want to change the direction of the conversation, you ask what else. But when the relationship's fractured, you want to continue, you say, tell me more. So north-south question rather than an east-west question. For two months, they would tell me, Oscar, nothing's changed. I say, great. At the beginning of the meeting, are you asking that question, what will make this a great conversation? And they said, oh, no, we forgot. I said, okay, please ask that question. So they said, what would make this a great conversation the third month? The chief marketing officer, Avi, said, you know what would make this a great conversation? If you can help me get the hell out of this organization, it's the most toxic place I've ever worked in my life. From that point on, the agenda was moved. They weren't talking about anything to do with work. They came back a month later and said, we want to design a campaign with you that will win you an industry award and create a platform for you to get noticed. And as a result, they worked together for 12 months. And 24 months later, that chief marketing officer moved to a different industry, an organization three times bigger, and they did not go out to tender she just rang up this advertising agency and said, come and do work in my new company. All because they moved out of transaction mm -hmm. and started to listen to, they were working in a toxic environment and they were bringing back the changes that were a function of the toxic environment. That's what happens when deep listening is present. And when deep listening is present, we transform our relationships. We're being transformed through the dialogue, we find that those conversations replenish and renew our energies. We become mentally more lucid and clear. At a deepest level, when we engage with deep listening, we heal each other in the conversation. 
My three exit questions. With all that you know today, what advice would you give your 25-year-old self? I remember my 25-year-old self very clearly, and my dad always told me, work hard, Oscar, work hard. And it was great advice because he said to me, Oscar, you can't always be the smartest in the room. You can always be the hardest working in the room. Until I discovered I had dyscalculus, which meant my relationship with maths and numbers meant I transposed numbers around the wrong way. So the advice I gave myself at 25 is I better figure out how to partner and team with people who are experts in areas I'll never get to. So the advice for my 25-year-old self is, well done, Oscar. Well, when you're 25, you started to partner with finance because you didn't understand numbers. And that became a really powerful relationship for the rest of your career. You were to lose all that you know and keep only two ideas or two capabilities or two practices. What would you keep? Number one, make sure that I exercise and look after myself first, because without that in place, nothing else is possible. And the second one is be a curious reader. You can learn much more from others than you'll ever learn from yourself. As we bring this conversation to Lending Oscar, what parting wisdom do you want to offer to people listening to create new futures? Just to learn what gets in the way when it comes to your listening, just visit listeningquiz.com, take the quiz. Don't worry about connecting with me, connect with yourself and you'll be able to start to have an impact beyond words in your workplace. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. Aviv always encourages his clients to identify the one or two ideas they can move forward into action immediately. What will you capture and apply today? You can always begin with a small action and then build momentum over time. When you move forward from an idea to action, you get immediate ROI, return on the time you invested, and return of learning. And then the learning cycle builds the success propulsion. One more thing. You can reach Aviv directly by phone and email to discover how he can help you create a new future for your business and organization. Creating your new future can begin today.